Hello, everyone, and thank you for watching or listening to the Ask L podcast. My name is Elliot Reed, and I'm coming from the Revitalized Health and Fitness Clinic, where we've helped over 6,500 individuals become pain-free, physically fit, mentally well, and more. Now, the topic of today's conversation is, does body shaming have its place? And for everyone listening live, I would very, very much appreciate your input. Now, the reason why I ask, does body shaming have its place? The truth is that COVID weight gain is going to cause many of us to shame the way that we look. Alcohol and takeaway consumption has increased. And why wouldn't it? We have less to do. We have less ways to fill our joyometer or the amount of joy that we can experience on a day-to-day basis. Many of us out of boredom will be consuming more to help ourselves cope. But as well as that, food and alcohol have an endorphic, uh, endorphin, endorphin, yeah, endorphic effect or dopaminogenic effect. They make us feel good. It's the equivalent of giving ourselves a nice big hug when we have uh, a load of nice calorific food. But today we will explore the function of shaming and whether it has a place when it comes to our bodies. Now, I will be talking about the emotional component here, but I will also be taking the emotions out of the equation and actually having a look to see if body shaming actually works or not. Now, counter to this, body acceptance is a growing trend to reduce the harmful effects of body shaming. But my question also is, is body acceptance a plaster for a festering wound? The festering wound being the fact that in, say, the 1940s, when the NHS was first created, the highest causes of death tended to be, for example, workplace accidents, workplace poisoning. Um, it could be um, road traffic accidents, etc. Now, the greatest causes of our deaths are what we're actually doing to ourselves. Those related to our food or dietary intake has a lot to do with, for example, heart disease, cancer, um, strokes, for example. So we'll ask, we'll explore today whether or not body shaming has its place, whether or not body acceptance has its place and uh, how to proceed after lockdown. So let's go, let's now explore the function of body shaming or let's talk about in a more general sense, the function of shaming in general. Now, psychologists have concluded that the function of shaming is to control social norms and hierarchy. See, and th- these things seem to be the function of shame. I, if I see you doing something which is socially unacceptable, if I shame you for that, it will, you'll then be less likely to do or to, to participate in that activity again. For example, promiscuity is shamed i.e. to sleep with multiple partners, historically at least. Functionally, functionally, when it comes to promiscuity, we can see that historically this would reduce the rate of, for example, sexually transmitted diseases, and as well as that, it helps to make to, to reduce scarcity of resources. For example, if I am in a relationship with and, and my wife or my partner has three children, um, I can provide for those three children. However, if I spread my seed far and wide, it's going to be far harder for me to take care of those individuals. So we can see how shaming can have a function. However, shaming a behavior is very, very, very different to shaming a label. And that's what we're talking about here. There isn't anyone shaming other people, really. 
for eating too much fast food. There's no one really shaming other people for drinking too much, really. The real shame here is what you look like. And that, in my opinion, is the problem. Shaming behavior, you might argue, has its place. Shaming how someone looks, very, very different, especially since, you know, you could even shame what someone's wearing, right? You could say, go home and put on something uh, that covers you up a little bit. Or you could say, you know, put your chest away or put your abs away or something like that. Person can amend that real quick. They can kind of reflect, change the behavior and act accordingly. However, when we're shaming someone's body, that individual doesn't have the luxury of taking what they're wearing off. They have to live with it. And we'll later explore that what happens most of the time when it comes to shaming someone's appearance is they go through a vicious cycle of shame and comfort, shame and comfort. So this leads us on to our next question. Does shame work? According to a study with a sample size of 2,944 individuals, body shaming actually increases weight gain. And this is due to what I've previously mentioned. When we are feeling, when we are shamed, we feel down in ourselves. When we are down in ourselves, we seek comfort. A lot of the time we'll go for the devil that we know rather than the devil that we don't know. So for example, if we've got someone who has built up a relationship with food and they have habitually been eating to make themselves feel more comfortable, then they will probably continue to eat to make themselves feel more comfortable. Just the nature of, of the beast, which is human nature. We all can also see that shaming helps the shamer. So Robert Sapolsky, who is a neuroscientist um, and I suppose a neurobiologist who wrote the book Behave, we can see that shaming or bullying actually helps the bullier. We can see that those individuals who bully actually serves themselves, it serves them quite a nice function. Those individuals who bully or who shame others have a drastic reduction in their stress hormone levels. It makes them feel a lot better. But and just to extrapolate on this, people tend to bully down, not up. So for example, an individual who is, let's call it hierarchically active, i.e. they're active in reinstating their own level on the hierarchical order, they will actively bully down and um, they will bully down and they will that's what's for the lack of a better word rather than like kissing ass. No, let's use kissing ass. They'll kiss ass upward and they'll shame down. Um, and the reason why they do this is it makes them feel better. But the problem is, is that the person who is the recipient of the bullying or of the shaming has a drastic increase in stress hormone secretion. This means that they're more likely to partake in stress-like behavior, like comfort eating, for example. Now, on the flip side, we can see from certain psychologists that self-shame may be a motivator, at least initially, i.e. if I was to shame myself for what I'm doing, how I'm behaving, how I look, that can actually motivate action, but it's very, very unlikely to come from another. Now, in NLP, so neuro-linguistic programming, this is called away from motivation, Away from motivation might be, for example, how poor you are, how big you are, how, si how silly you are, how stupid you are. These are away from motivators, right? These are ways that individuals um, can have a negative reinforcement for the behavior that they're doing. However, this in isolation doesn't work. It's only temporary. So, for example, um, 
if someone is big, they can't shame themselves about being big into getting slim. If someone is, for example, poor, they can't shame themselves um, for, from, for their poverty into, for example, making more money. They have to have a towards motivation. That towards motivation is something which is emotionally anchored in a positive future. So for example, the individual who wants to lose weight will look to a nice dress that they want to fit into. They'll look to a nice bar that they want to go dance in. Um, whilst looking a certain way they might look to a beach holiday that they want to look good for these are towards motivation they have to be in balance or you might even argue that the towards motivation has to be heavily uh geared towards um in in favor of rather than the away motivation so the towards motivation has to be far more dominant than the away motivation we also need to look at the predisposing factors for obesity. Now, the reason why we have to do this is we need to look at whether or not the issue with obesity lies in the, in the control of the individual or in the control of the group. The reason why this is very, very important is we as British people live in a very individualistic culture, i.e. the locus of control and the likelihood of success relies on the individual. This is why we as a culture have things like awful programs such as Benefit Street, because for those who are once again on the hierarchical, on top hierarchically, they can look down and shame those beneath them and by doing so make themselves feel better. So by empowering the individual, the individual shames those underneath them, the individual at top feels better, the one underneath feels worse, and then they have to do the same thing. So we can link this to, for example, our class structure. We can link this to our hierarchical view of, for example, weight, fitness, beauty, and things like this. So why was I even talking about that? We're talking about individualism. Yeah, that's why it's important to talk about the predisposing factors for obesity, because we have to question whether or not the uh, control for obesity lies with the individual or does it lie within the group? Now, the truth is, and sorry, just to, to explain why, because if we understand which controls which, we can then empower that, that, that uh, locus more so. Do we empower the group or do we empower the individual? So far, we've been empowering the individual for decades and it hasn't really worked. So we need to look at what other predisposing factors there might be other than that individual's own control over obesity. We can see, we can see that obesity is highly correlated to stress, financial stress, social stress, etc., as seen in the marshmallow experiment. Now, let's wind it back a little bit. When it comes to financial and social stresses, this could be, for example, a person living in an overcrowded house. It could be someone with severe financial difficulties. This is why we start to see more people of um, poorer socioeconomic foundations being more overweight than those who are wealthy. Historically, this hasn't been the case. Historically, if you're richer, you can afford more food, you can eat more. Now, food is so readily available, we're seeing the opposite. The marshmallow experiment, which I mentioned, was an experiment conducted between a group of psychologists and they wanted to see whether or not certain individuals or certain children could wait for a second marshmallow. So, for example, uh, these children were sitting down in a classroom and they were under control of the, the teacher and the teacher said, I'm going to give you one marshmallow, but if you bear with me, I'll return later. And if, you, if the marshmallow is still there, I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna give you another one. Now, the experiment found that those individuals who could 
wait actually went on to earn more and do better in education. Those individuals who couldn't wait fared poorer in later life. This is the principle of delayed gratification. If you can delay gratification for a little while, then you'll probably be better off in the long term. However, when they dive down into the data later on, they found that the individuals who could wait for another marshmallow came from typically wealthier backgrounds. Those who didn't wait came from poorer backgrounds. Now, we can, we can obviously apply the principle of um, delayed gratification to those children of rich parents or wealthy parents, but for the poorer kids, they were running a different software or, or schema for that moment, which was you get when the going's good. So if those individuals who grew up in poorer backgrounds, when food is historically less predictable, that whether or not you're going to go out for a meal that week or whether your mom's going to come home with enough food that week is less predictable. Um, when it comes to um, the general aspect of that individual's life everything is less predictable whether or not they might see their dad at the weekend whether or not they're going to be allowed out for a treat so therefore you get whilst the going's good and this might unfortunately be a bit of a predisposition for obesity in poorer or lower socioeconomic um, households we also have to accept that obesity is a herd problem not an individual problem as commonly thought of it is not an individual choice it is a societal choice so we have to you know, based on, on the conclusion, which I feel was really fairly solid, that obesity is a problem for society, not for the individual, we have to then ask a question, do we empower the individual or do we empower the society? I say we empower the society. And then the question is, how do we empower the society? So the solution, Amsterdam is the only country that has actually been able to consistently reduce childhood obesity. We copy many of the interventions that um, Amsterdam has used in um, our, our, our clinic, in the Revitalized Health and Fitness Clinic. Now, the number one thing to do is to eliminate environmental temptation. That means that you go for your food shop, say, once or twice a week, and you make sure that you're well-disciplined for that food shop. So then when you come back and you've you've uh, put all your food away, you know that there's no temptation in your house. Same thing that they did in schools, they removed fast food, for example, from the vending machines. We also want to educate the, the social group. So you want to educate that social group to make better decisions. The third is reward some with something other than food. It tends to be that in the UK, we are very, very keen on rewarding our good behavior with food or alcohol, and when we don't do very well, we comfort ourselves with food and alcohol. So we want to reward ourselves with something other than that. That might be, for example, a nice day out with the family. It could be buying yourself something that you really wanted, anything like that. They also found that by culturally diversifying um, their food and learning to cook, this also helped. Western Europe, when it comes to cuisine, especially England, is absolutely pants. Like the English cuisine is rubbish. I don't care what you say, where, how much you like shepherd's pie or how much you like fish and chips or a fried breakfast, like for, for when in terms of health, it's pants. So they found by culturally diversifying the food that they were eating and learning to cook, it empowered the group as well as the individuals. The last one was actually prioritizing sleep by making sure that these individuals were getting eight hours of sleep a night. This made sure that their stress hormones were as low as possible, so they're less likely to crave unhealthy food.
So to conclude, shaming benefits the shamer, not the shamed. It helps the shamer to reduce stress hormone, um, the amount of stress hormones in the body, makes them feel better in themselves. For the person who was shamed, it reinforces their bad behavior. Self-shame, however, may be useful in initially motivating one's, oneself, but not long-term, i.e. it might, self-shame might cause you to do more and to get the ball rolling, but it's not a good long-term motivator. So if you guys, if any of you want to improve your health and improve your fitness, then all you need to do is go to www.revitalizedclinic.co.uk slash personal dash training to book a free consultation with a personal trainer who understands your needs. Our personal trainers are extremely well-educated, extremely well-experienced in what uh, they experience and in, in what they need to do. Um, also, they're very well-educated and very well-experienced on their own um on the service that they provide, but as well as at their own story. So for example, we've got um, May who's lost eight stone in body weight. We've got Maya who has used exercise successfully to control her, her mental health and her, her focus. We've got Jazz who's a sports scientist as well as a personal trainer. So if you need to uh, talk to someone who understands you inside out, then you know where to go. Contact us at the Revitalized Health and Fitness Clinic. Thank you so much for listening. I'm now going to answer a few of the questions which we've had. So Katie, uh, you said, do you think people usually shame others, physical, other physical changes due to unhappiness with their own? Potentially so. Yeah, potentially so. I think that if someone is, let's go back to the hierarchical model, for someone to be measuring themselves against others, they probably are already fairly in content with themselves. So yeah, I would, I would 100% agree with that. Um, the psychologist, Jordan Peterson, he's got a very good principle, which does empower the individual, which is to clean up your own room before you start telling others to do the same. And I think that's a, a good piece of advice. Um, we also had another comment of, uh, Roland. So you're listening to this whilst working out the irony. <laughs> very good. No, it's good. That's very good. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. I will put this on our blog at www.revitalsclinic.co.uk. I hope you guys have a blessed week. Take care and all the best.